And welcome to the weekly Industry 4.0 community podcast. I am your host, Walker D. Reynolds. Uh, we are live for Tuesday, November 1st, 2022. November 1st. Okay. So I just want to put that in perspective here. It's basically the end of the month. We have eight weeks to go for uh, in the in the calendar year, and in our case, the fiscal year, because we actually do a January 1 fiscal year. Um, <clears throat> we're coming up into the eight slowest weeks of the year for the industrial automation industry 4.0 community. It's, it's a very interesting, like everyone has lots of work to do. Um, everyone has lots of projects going on. And they only have basically five working weeks remaining in the year, even though there's eight weeks left in the year. So um, we have a really good uh, podcast for you this week. It's going to be a tad more technical than normal. Let's, we're going to go ahead and test a little technical um, podcast and see how it goes, see what the viewership looks like. But uh, as you can see, the title, Future of PLCs, Embedded, C Embedded OPC UA, we're going to have a, um, a conversation about time-sensitive networks, um, is uh, OPC UA clients and servers embedded in PLCs, sort of the future of industry 4.0. Is it even really honestly viable? There's a big discussion in the Discord server about this over the last couple months. Um, we're going to go over OPC UA and MQTT interoperability. Um, one of the members of the communities, I didn't get an email back from him yet, so I don't know if I can mention his name, but I'm going to be reading a section from a paper that's coming out. Um, that's going to be released, uh, that talks about OPC UA and MQTT, sort of the lay of the land and some modifications that need to be made. And then I'm going to go through a list of, from another member of the community, uh, some gaps in MQTT. Hey, Josh, please make sure you paste in the message thread from that, that member of the community, uh, where he said, Hey, don't, you know, you can go ahead and mention this, but just don't attribute it to my name yet. Um, please make sure that I paste it in so I can read his comments exactly as they came through. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to start with um, one of the things I've been trying to focus on is, um, you know, making sure we talk about personal growth, business development, some more philosophical items at the beginning of the podcast, and then get into the technical items in the next three sections. Um, and today we're going to, we're going to have a discussion about the fact that we are all dispensable every single one of us. And it's a really important discussion. So um, I hope you stick around for it. Um, as a quick reminder, I don't see the YouTube chat anymore because we're streaming both through LinkedIn and YouTube. If you do have a question, you can go ahead and ask it and Josh will bring it up in the chat um, uh, in Restream. Let's talk about uh, the dispensability stuff. <clears throat> really, it, there's two, well, there's really three primary drivers of why I wanted to talk about this in the podcast today. Um, the first one was sort of an internal lesson in our organization, something that I say quite a bit, um, conversations that we've had internally as a team. Okay. Um, and I'll and some conversations that came around as it related to my divorce. Right. Um, so that was number one. Number two was this quiet quitting discussion. It, I, I'm really surprised at how many people got pissed about the quiet quitting thing. Actually, I'm not surprised, but I'm, I, I wanted to make sure I, I, I talked about that a little bit. Um, and then the last thing is, is, um, you know, some, some people that I have like a professional relationship with, and I have a lot of respect for are going through some drama, um, within their own organization. And it, it just sort of all happened over the last few days. And um, they're taking a lot of heat for what their comments were. Um, and, and I wanted I wanted to I finally said, you know, I need to bring this up in the podcast. So number one, we are all dispensable, <laughs> like as an as a an, as an employee, as a member of a team. Everyone is dispensable, right? Even me. We talk about this in our organization all the time. I I may be the boss. I may own 49 companies. I may you know, arguably I'm one of the most well-known industrial automation engineers on the planet. I'm certainly one of the 
top three foremost spokespeople for industry 4.0 in the world, right? I'm really, really well known. Everybody wants me to architect their projects and lead, you know, organizations want me to come in and evaluate them and stuff. But even, even I an answer to people like as a, as a business owner, e even I have bosses and those bosses are my customers, right? If my customers aren't happy, okay, I, I'm still answering to them. Okay. Um, and, and I can get fired too by the customer. Okay. And the same goes true for even just like, you know, for rank and file employees who I think oftentimes think, you know, people who are running companies, they don't answer to anyone. No, they answer to a lot more people than a, a rank and file employee. A rank and file employee only answers to their direct supervisor. Really? But the higher you move up the food chain, the more people you have to answer to. Okay. My father, I, I've mentioned this before, but my dad used to tell me that there was, you know, there are a couple of numbers that everyone needed to know, and that is exactly how much they cost and actually exactly how much they generate. Okay. And the, the general number is if I cost $100,000 a year to employ, I need to generate in indirect and direct revenue about $300,000, 3x of what I cost in order for it to, to, in order for an organization to be able to justify having me, keep me around. All right. We were talking about this internally as a team, you know, why is our society structured the way it is? Like, why do we have employers and employees? Why do we have, um, why do we go buy shit at stores? Like, why is it we don't just have a cistern underneath our house where we store all the fruits and vegetables or grew last year? The answer is, it's because growing your own shit takes way more work than going to a job and trading the capital, the money that you, you earned by trading your specialized skill it takes a lot more work to grow your own shit and store it. And there's a lot more risk, you know, blight and bugs. And, you know, the, the risk of starvation is much higher if you're not in a civilized society. But the, the cost of being in a civilized society is the social contract argument is that I'm going to trade a specialized skill that I have. Okay, I'm going to trade a specialized skill for money that I'm going to trade for other people's specialized skills. Right. That's how our economy works. Why do we build organizations? Why isn't everyone an independent contractor? Right. This is a really important question. Lots of people are trying to become independent contractors. Well, why is it that all people aren't independent contractors? Well, the answer is, is because teams, if built correctly, are more than the sum of their parts. So what does that mean? It means that if I if the maximum output that I can put out as an independent contractor is N, okay? And I take six independent contractors and I put them together and the, and the synergy is right. Dynamically, we got the right, their strengths are the correct. We have a subject matter expert who's really good at like organizational psychology. And I got a subject matter expert who's really good at some functional capability that we're gonna take directly to market. You take all those people, you put them together, they can become more than the sum of their parts. That is their output could be greater than 6N. It could be literally like 10N or 12N or 18N. And the and the delta between summing up all of their productivity as individuals and, and what the sum productivity is when they're working together as a group, that delta, the delta between 6N and 12N or 18N is additional is additional value that goes into our economy that is used to take care of the people who can't take care of themselves, the people whose output is 0.3 N or 0.6 N. The problem we run into is when people who are really capable of that is their potential, their capability is they can do N output, but because they're entitled or they're bitches or whatever it is, you know, they're, they're crybabies or they're lazy or, you know, they're, or they're, they don't have virtue. They want to just take from others. They're selfish. The, the problem with those people is that they're violating the social contract. Okay. And that other people have to pick up for, and they're choosing to do so. So I want to talk about this, this one quick thing, this. So you guys remember we sponsored the Shaw classic and, and, um, part of the attendees, st the strong men that went there were the, 
it was supposed to be Tom Stoltman, who's the world's strongest man. He's a two-time reigning world strongest man. His brother Luke. You guys can look these guys, you can look them up on the on YouTube. They're Stoltman Brothers is their YouTube channel. They got a big YouTube channel. And the other day I saw that they said they were they were taking a break from YouTube. And I watched the video and I saw, and it basically the the digital media strategist that they were using, this guy named Simon, had suddenly quit and left them without anything. Okay, they left them without a digital media team or whatever. And and the Simon kid, he published a video saying why I quit. He quit on on the spot. And what he said was, is he had heard two words that changed his life forever. And that was, um, you're dispensable. Okay, so apparently the, 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 the message was, you know, you're dispensable. That is, you're, no one here isn't um, above being fired. And it really cast a really bad light on the Stoltman brothers. It made it look like they were treating their employees like shit, right? Because Simon really, he, he played a huge role in building, building up their, their YouTube channel and their, and their strength business and merchandise and all this stuff. And so then the Stoltman brothers come back and they, they do a response video and they, and they, and everybody, they all take the high road, right? They're all like, you know, we wish Simon the best, blah, 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 you know, and the Stoltman brothers didn't address the controversy. And, and obviously it was, they ended up losing tons and tons of subscribers because this kid came out and he said, you know, they said you're dispensable, which is true. You're dispensable. Okay. You're dispensable. I'm dispensable. I own the fucking company and I'm dispensable. Okay. Um, but because he, th this kid, you know, who arguably did a lot of great work, right? And, 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 they obvi and obviously the Stoltman brothers care about this kid. They love him. You know, the team that's still there loves this kid. But what that kid did was he threw a temper tantrum. And for what? The price of that temper tantrum was to damage the company, the company that his friends and family get paid from. You know what I mean? Like, what did he gain? Like, it's one thing. It's one thing to give people bad news in order to help them. It's one thing to give people bad news in order to help them. My father used, told me when I was a kid as a, as a parenting strategy, all, uh, all types of accountability are on the table. So if, if you meet somebody who responds to getting yelled at, use yelling as the way you motivate them. Like I, we have people here. In fact, we have people who work here who want to be yelled at in order to be motivated. And one of them is an executive leader. One of them is uh, the chief operating officer wants conflict in, in order for him to be motivated. In fact, he requests it. Okay. There are other people who don't respond to that. And so what is the threshold? Right. Well, the threshold is assuming that everyone's holding up their end of the bargain. If I rip someone a new ass as a boss, okay, if I remind them that their paycheck every two weeks is a function of their ability to do their job alongside the everyone else's ability to do their job, and that uh, over the course of an entire year, your output is greater than the sum of your parts, okay, if I remind them of that, that's me doing my job as a leader. It's my job to remind everyone how this works and to motivate them and to lead them and to set the example and set the strategies. But the threshold is, is that it doesn't matter how you feel in the moment that I'm holding you accountable. That's in inconsequential. My father used to tell us when we were kids. What matters is, is later that night when the emotions have died down, the person you held accountable says, you know what? He was right. Just like when you're raising your children, it doesn't matter how your kids feel about you when they're 16. It matters how your kids feel about you when they're 35. Because you're raising adults, you're not raising children. So it only matters what your kids think of you once they're adults and they can appreciate what you did to raise them when they were children. Okay, in, in, in this organization, John McLeod is our chief experience officer. John, I have made it very clear to everyone, John is going nowhere. And the reason why is because John helped build this company. Now, I'm going to tell you the story about McLeod, and then we'll get into the embedded OPCUA discussion. And, and the lesson here is I want everyone to, if, if, if you're a person who's watching this podcast, you're listening to this podcast, 
and you think you are indispensable, turn off the fucking video and never come back here again. Seriously, I don't want people like that in this community. We are all dispensable. The obstacle is the way. <laughs> the, cha the, the failure is the point. Learning through failure equals growth. We, we are all dispensable. All of us are on borrowed time. Every single one of us. And if you're the type of person who's going to get offended because someone reminds you you're dispensable, you don't belong here. You don't belong here. You don't belong in this community. You don't belong on my team, my internal team or external team. I don't want you here. I want people who go in with the mindset, I'm dispensable. There are people counting on me. There was a follow-up video to the Stoltmans, another internal employee posted another video. And if you look at it, it just came out this morning. It's about an hour or a minute long. And he says, what Simon said was not true. Okay. We love Simon. We wish him the best. There's no ill wills, but what he said wasn't true. No one said you're dispensable. What they said was the only people here who are not dispensable are me and Tom, Luke Stoltman and Tom. Now I've met Luke personally. I have not met Tom. I had a chance to spend a weekend with him. My son interviewed him. There is no nicer guy on the fucking planet. I mean, literally, he just shot a video on mental health a month ago. Like the, these guys are literally the, the kindest, most amazing people, really. Um, the, and, and yet they're, they're taking a beating. They're taking a beating in a, in a cancel culture world, uh, for, for honestly telling the truth. Truth matters. So what would be really great is if everyone in this community went over to the Stoltman brothers and subscribed to their channel, even if you don't want to watch their shit. If you went over and just subscribed, added subscribers, that would be great. Because that would be this community commu communicating to them that truth matters. I want to tell the story about McLeod and then we'll get into embedded OPC UA. Um, John, when I first started this company in 2015, there was a guy who had been selling to me and his name was John McLeod. He, John is our chief experience officer. And, um, he, he worked for a software vendor. And when I was the manager of Texas operations for another company, he, he had been trying to sell me the software. It was a, the alarm software for, um, industry. And, um, and there was a discussion about maybe I buy the company there, there, because that, that, that company happened to be for sale, the company he was working for. Anyway, he heard, I went into business for myself and started this integrator. And he called me. I still remember the phone call to this day. He calls me. I'm in my driveway at my house. And he says, hey, Walker, it's John McLeod. He said, I heard that you went into business for yourself, and I would love to come work with you. Like, I, you know, you're the kind of guy I want, I want to work with. You know, my experience with you has been phenomenal. I want to come work with you. I said, John, I, I, I love it. I, I love you. I think you're amazing. But I don't have the money to hire you. I already have a business development guy. I don't have the money. He's, and John said to me, you don't have to pay me. He said, just let me come to and pitch to your team how I would do the business development and give me a shot. He goes, and I'll pay my own way as long as you give me this amount in commission once I start selling, once the pipeline fills up. And I said, how long will that take? And he said, probably about six months. I said, all right, I'll give you, this is what I'll promise you. You come here, you pitch to my team. There were eight of us at the time. Your idea, including the existing business development manager. And if they all agree, we'll make it happen. We'll figure it out. And he said, deal. And he said, but I want to say one thing to you. He said, I believe you and I will be a great team. He said, I promise all I have to do is get you in the room with the right people. Your message, your, your sincerity, your transparency, your authenticity. All I got to do is get you in the room with the right people. And it'll take care of itself. He said, that, that's my strategy. And I said, okay. And he said, and my promise to you is I'll never put you in the room with the wrong person. And I said, okay. So he came and he gave a pitch. This is when we're in a office off my garage. 
okay, small little tiny apartment that we turned into an office, had a whiteboard on the wall. We set out eight folding chairs for my team to sit down. And John went up on the whiteboard and he literally wrote out a strategy, a business development strategy for attacking like five specific accounts in three specific verticals and what his approach would be. And we came out of that call, we came out of that meeting and I said, I need to figure out how to get this guy on board. And so we, we did a, like a, a, a stipend where he was going to get paid a certain amount as a stipend each month. Um, but it was a, a modest amount just to pay for him to travel around. And then he would, once he filled the pipeline, he would get paid a, a salary, which we agreed upon, plus a commission structure, which we agreed upon beforehand. And we originally said that was going to take six months. And he used his own savings. He used his own money to fund this. He took money out of his own savings to keep paying his bills to help build this up off the ground. And to this day, okay, by the end of that year, by December of that year, we broke a million dollars in sales in just a nine-month window. With a team of eight, we broke a million dollars in sales. And when we did our Christmas party at a Dallas Cowboys football game, it was, it was like December 16th of that year. It was Cowboys versus Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You can look it up. I think it was December 2016, whatever it was. And we had a tent and tailgating and took everybody in the game. They had the whole team there giving out gifts and Christmas bonuses. And I got to announce that we broke a million dollars in sales in our first nine months. And fucking John did that. And to this day, we, we literally just, we, were, we had a suite at the Dallas Stars game at the American Airlines Center earlier this week. Okay. We had, we had a suite, had our whole team there uh, while well, all the team here. And then there was a, and the other half of the suite was some other company. And we're all talking and shooting the shit and introducing ourselves. And I told that story. You know, John helped build this company. Like John, he helped make this happen. That the IntelliCare integration does not exist if John McLeod didn't make the sacrifice that he made in order to help build it. And there have been many times where I have come down on John. There have been many times where I've chewed John's ass. There have been many times where I've said, John, you got to get your head in the game. But John never up, threw up his hands in the air and said, you hurt my feelings. I'm out of here. John's retiring in two years. Okay, John's retiring in two years. Our whole team is focused on John's retirement. Two years out. Not what are we going to do when John's gone, but how do we take care of John when he retires? And, and there were a million times where I've come down on John. But let me say this. I, I want to make this point. At Intellic Integration, we are more than the sum of our parts because our team is made up of people like that. John's not the only one here who's like that. Everyone on this team is like that. Our whole organization is built with people who understand that we're working towards a much bigger mission. But that doesn't mean that each and every one of us isn't dispensable, including me. All right. But I do make the joke. We hired a, a sales guy, I don't know, maybe three years ago. And it didn't in his first week, him and John were just button heads and we were doing a staff meeting. I literally said to the guy and I liked him a lot, said, I like you. I think you're awesome. I think you have a ton of potential. But you either figure out how to get along with John or you have to go because he's going nowhere. John helped build this company. He's going nowhere. <laughs> All, right. All right. Sorry. I, I do apologize. I went longer than I had hoped, but hopefully it's worth it. Uh, S. McCurge. Hello, Walker. Excellent lectures. Very absorbing. I'm looking forward to understanding where we're moving in terms of OT and IT convergence. Uh, Josh. Oh, obstacles the way meditations. Yep. Good one. Uh, all right. Let's go over this OPCUA discussion. This is going to get kind of technical. Okay. Uh, first thing I want to do is, is um, if you guys want to see this um, thread, it started September 19th in Discord. I'm not sure which channel Josh will put it in. He'll put it in the, in the overlay as to which channel it is, and I'll read it. But we'll start with what Matt Paris contributed. So Matt said... At IMTS in Chicago, I spoke to Peter Lutz of the OPC Foundation about FLC, field level control, right? 
He explained that PLC supporting FLC will have to include an OPC UA client to configure the other controller or device when they release that specification. I asked him that since so few PLCs implement an OPC UA client over 16 years after the general specification was released, what would convince the OEMs to add an OPC UA client now to support the FLC initiative? So, um, everyone has, there's a basic premise that we all have to agree on, okay? And that's this premise. If OPC UA, if OPC UA is the standard through which interoperability can be achieved, why hasn't it been widely adopted? One of the things that I really want to do, I'd love to do this, fund it myself. It would probably cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, but I would love to do a study, a market study on that does a corollary and a contrast between um, all of the elements in the OPC UA standard in the specification and all of the available products that exist in the market with those capabilities. I'd love to do like a heat map and basically do a matrix of each element in the OPC standard and then basically do a heat map as to which ones exist, right? Which information models are being leveraged, right? Et cetera. What, how many of the companion specs are actually being used? And I'll guarantee you, I guarantee you, guarantee you, guarantee you, more than half of the OPC uh, specification has no implementation. Not little or single or few, but no examples of it being implemented. More than half. So we, ha we have to accept the premise right now, in order for this conversation to make sense, that the market has told us OPC UA is not the mechanism through which interoperability will be achieved. And the reason why is exactly what Matt just said there. 16 years after the spec, 16 years, 16 years, we do not see wide adoption. Why? And why is it that more than half the spec hasn't been implemented at all anywhere in any product? And I, and he, and I don't have data to support that. That's me speculating, but it's, in, it's anecdotal based on my knowledge, but I'll bet you it's accurate. But I, I would have to fund a study in order to prove it, okay? Um, Matt, the, what Matt finished his comment, he said, Peter's response was that the use case didn't exist before and that the market will pressure PLC OEMs to add this capability. So the argument that Peter said is, even though we wrote this 16 years ago, Nobody's been wanting to serve out the entire information model, okay, from a PLC. That's essentially why you would put an OPC server on board so that you could basically browse the entire information model and you could consume it at, at will. Okay, that, it, that would be the use case, right? Now, when we start talking about time-sensitive networking, so you guys see it abbreviated as TSN, but when we start talking about TSN, which is, in a nutshell, TSN, all TSN is, is Ethernet with uh, determinism. That is, we guarantee that the message was received and we know exactly who received it. That's all, that's all that really TSN really means. It puts in a bunch of mechanisms in there to make sure that you're prioritizing time-sensitive time information and that messages are received in the proper order and all that kind of stuff. But for the lay person, TSN really is Ethernet with determinism. We're guaranteed the message was received and it, and it was received by the person we wanted to send it to. Okay, that's all that's all that really is in the in in layman's terms. He's arguing that the use case hasn't existed until now for browsing entire namespaces, which simply isn't true. Do you want to know why? Well, MQTT was created in the late 90s right around the time when TCP was winning the protocol wars. MQTT was created so that you could build those browsable namespaces. Like a gap in the market already existed in the late 90s for this piece. Now, that wasn't the primary. The big reason was how do I send, how do I send data points? MQTT was really initially designed. How do I send data over 
wire over the wire when I have very limited limited bandwidth? And how can I send oil and gas telemetry data at a much higher frequency than pulling it every 15 minutes or every once per hour? Like that was really the, the solution. And the answer was, let's create a stateful protocol that's edge driven and report by exception. And if we're only reporting by exception and we're pushing the message, we never have to request for the message, then we can eliminate so much of the consumption of the bandwidth. And then same thing like with the header. Let's keep the header really, really small. Let's not send a lot of definition information when we're instantiating that connection. Let's not send a lot of, you know, and I'm going to go over this list from another member of the community about the limitations of MQTT here in a second. Um, a lot of the limitations he points out are only limitations if you if you want your protocol to be something more like OPC, okay? Um, but Peter's argument that the use case for wanting to browse namespaces in smart things didn't exist until now and it didn't exist 16 years ago is just patently false. It's patently false. The unified namespace architecture that I created was first implemented in a fucking salt mine in 2005. Why? Because there was a gap in existing um, technology that made that possible. Like I had to create my own because it didn't exist. There is another reason it's not being widely adopted. Okay. And there are actually, there's many reasons. Okay. And not the least of which is the, the, the fundamental problems with the OPC foundation, that the organization itself Okay. Uh, so Matt said at ACOS, what are your thoughts that PLCs will have to embed an OPC UA client to connect to other devices for FLC? Okay. And JS, um, uh, he, I know who this is, but I, I don't know if he wants us to actually use his full name. So I'm just going to use JS. One of the smart, you know, uh, I love Matt and, and JS's exchanges in the discord server. If you want to see great conversations, but JS really hits, you know, hits the nail on the head here. He says, so I know this question is directed to Akos, but I'd like to chime in. So outside of a few of the PLC makers that are big on machine to machine over OPC UA. Okay. So think uh, for those of you who do like industrial, you know, um, process control, think, um, you know, produce consume tags in Rockwell controllers. So, you know, how you, you would use a produce, a produce or consumed tag in Rockwell controllers to do controller to controller communication over their native over SIP, right? That you, what he's talking about is outside of a few PLC makers that are big on machine to machine over OPC way, instead of doing native field bus, you know, the native protocol with produce consume, you're going to use OPC UA for that com that communication. He's saying outside of the few PLC makers that are big on that, I don't really see this taking off. The PLC open function block was neat, but few companies wholeheartedly adopted it. Also, not having to map in and out field bus payloads is a pretty good use case, right? So he's making a point. He's saying, Peter, you're wrong, okay? Um, he, so then he puts together a list of arguments here, and he says, pretending to be interoperable is the header. And he says, if you look at TSN, which is time-sensitive networking, okay, remember what, how I described it which FLC relies on for determinism. So that and determinism is getting it to the place it's supposed to go and confirming it got there. Okay. Many of the field bus organizations are using TSN to enhance their own competing field bus technologies. Correct. And Matt Paris has a paper coming out that sort of shows how that would happen. If you look at the stack, um, the communications uh, protocol and profile, um, you'll, you'll see how where TSN would get inserted in there to do that. Okay. But why would one create a new version of a field bus while also participating in working groups to consolidate them? It's a great question. Well, why is it that people create their own field buses? Um, and that's a whole other discussion. I'm not going to get into it. But, 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 but really what it boils down to initially is speed and control. That I, I want to have control over the protocol and I want as fast as I possibly can get. Number two, his header is Rockwell doesn't care. <laughs> so if ODVA is working on a TSN implementation of Ethernet IP and ODVA is largely influenced by Rockwell, I'd say largely influenced, I'd say completely controlled by Rockwell, 
why would Rockwell bother implementing an OPC UA client with the SIP companion spec? Great question. The answer is they wouldn't. Mitsubishi doesn't care is the next header. If CLPA is working on a TSN implementation of CC Link IE, and CLPA is largely influenced by Mitsubishi, and I would make the argument that it's controlled by Mitsu, okay? Why would Mitsubishi bother implementing an OPC UA client with CC Link companion spec? And the answer is they wouldn't be, and that's why they haven't. The next header is Siemens is confused. If Siemens recently enhanced their controller firmware for OPC UA client support, and Pi PI is largely influenced by Siemens, why would PI bother working on a TSN implementation of Profinet? And the answer is they wouldn't. And then he says Fanuc doesn't even bother. That's the next header. If Fanuc or Fanuc, depending upon how you want to um, pronounce it, plans to continue using their range of native protocols, for example, IO-Link, SRTP, SNPX, uh, Focus, and support popular field bus protocols like Ethernet IP and Profinet, and still not use OPC UA in any of their hardware, why would Fanuc implement an OPC UA client at all? And the answer is they wouldn't. And moreover, moreover, um, their um, MT Connect is is sort of their shortcut uh, away from having to adopt uh, to deploy OPC UA in their controllers. Right? They they've really uh, MT Connect MT Connect adapters for exposing those namespaces is really the direction that Fanuc has gone. All right. Matt Paris responds with, before they can tackle um, TSN, time-sensitive networking, PLCs must embed an OPC UA client to be compliant with FLC controller-to-controller controller or the in-progress controller-to-device spec. At Akos, do you think this requirement will be too large for PLCs to comply with the FLC specifications? And Josh, I'm assuming... The reason you scratched out part of Akos's response is you just don't think that that ap applies here. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read what he originally wrote there at the beginning. So Akos gave him a fairly long reply, and I want, I'm going to read the whole thing. He said, I do not think that you can speak of PLCs in general. There are PLCs which use cheap 8-bit processors, and there are PLCs using high-performance x64 architectures. Definitely, there will be PLCs which will not be able to implement this. I would say most, okay? M most uh, mid-level, mid no-level, okay? There are PLCs which cannot implement other high-speed field buses for the same reason. As the cost of compute is getting cheaper, uh, more and more PLCs will be able to implement complex communication mechanisms. I am more worried about TSN plus PubSub than about PLC compute performance. I would be more concerned about PLC compute performance. And here's why. We do enough edge compute projects to understand that there is a very specific threshold for the amount of money you can spend to integrate a dumb um, device on the, on the edge. That is, I'm going to use physical wiring to sensors into something smart. And that smart thing is what's going to plug into my infrastructure. Uh, we've done enough of those implementations to know that you have to do everything and engineering hardware spend all in for about $800 per node. So for each device I'm going to put on the plant floor, I can't spend more than basically $800, including labor in order for an organization to say that, that, that we can justify the cost there. Okay. That's about the number. Now, for some organizations, the threshold is higher. For some organizations, the threshold is lower. But in general, if you use the $800 number, you're really safe. I mean, like in, it, it works in like 80% of the cases, 90% of the cases. Okay. In order, in order to get hit that $800 number, you have to compromise on computational capability. And one of the first things that gets thrown out is any overhead that is non-mission critical. And let me say this, deploying an OPC, you can do this yourself, okay, if you want to, okay? You go ahead and like install Kept Server on your on a virtual machine. Connect a series of devices. You could create simulators if you wanted to. And then set up a couple of clients 
that are going to go ahead and pull that server and adjust the polling, re the requests. Start out with, I'm requesting once every 60 seconds for data. And then move that down to like one second and watch, watch how the CPU cycles spike. One of the big limitations in OPC is the, the computational overhead required to respond to requests is a function of the frequency of the requests. The, the client itself has a lot of control over how much horsepower you need to use in order to respond to messages. That's one of the fundamental that th this is the one of the biggest issues I have with OPC UA, the client server architecture, even if I'm using pub sub. Okay. Um, he says the current Siemens S7 1500 PLCs can handle 30 parallel incoming OPC UA connections. I did test this and it can run a production line in parallel. But why would an OPC client be a problem? I just laid out why. Because you don't, the, 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 the issue is the frequency at which re requests come in. Okay. There's you, you literally could just, you could spike the CPU. Now in a, let's say like an Opto 22 would be a really good example where having an onboard OPC server is not a problem because there it's, it's got two processors and they're, and they're, and they're ice completely isolated. One processor is designed just for process control. And the other one is the EPC. The, the industrial PC, the IPC, the industrial PC component, all, all the overhead associated with non-critical applications are in a completely, are in a completely separate processor. PLCs aren't generally doing that. Also, he picked the S7 1500, which is the Ferrari, right? If you, if you look at the DH445 motion controller, same thing. It's the Ferrari. It's got all the horsepower you could possibly ask for. All right, I wanted to um, I wanted to cover so I wanted to touch on something real quick, which was some limitations of MQ. There's a there's a member of the community I've been having a a bunch of internal conversations with, and you know we're looking on collaborating to help drive the Sparkplug B group and the MQTT working group in a specific direction. And I wanted to just he and I were having a conversation yesterday, and I said, hey man, I'd love to bring this up on the podcast. Do I have your permission? And he said, yeah, just sort of leave, leave my name out of it for right now. And I said, okay, cool. No problem. So as it relates to the MQTT committee and the Sparkplug B working group, here were his comments. Now, let me say this. I have a shit ton of respect for this guy. He knows his shit. Okay. Even internally within my team, I say, listen, I am rarely impressed rare. So when, when I tell you, you should listen to somebody, you should listen to them. When I tell you that, you know, Matt Paris in the next 12 to 18 months is going to be the world's, you know, foremost authority on OPC UA outside of the OPC foundation. I really, I fucking mean it. Like if Matt Paris says something about OPC, you should listen because I assure you, there's no one outside the foundation who's doing their homework more than he is. Okay. So when I say, Matt is an authority there. Listen to him. This guy who has this comment here, this is not Matt who made this comment. He, this guy's an authority. He knows his shit. Okay. Um, you know, when I talk to him, you know, he's always six steps ahead of everybody else. And I was telling my team this the other day. Like he, this guy, he's always six steps ahead. He's not asking questions he doesn't know the answer to. Right. He's, you know, so you should don't dismiss what he put, what he puts here just because of the way he says it, because he's right. Okay. He, he's right. I, this, this statement here that he states is pure opinion. It's not my opinion. Okay. I understand why he feels that way. Okay. But, uh, it hasn't been my experience. So let me start with that. And when he gets down to the core MQTT issues, which I'm going to also talk about. Okay. Um, I agree with all the issues he listed there. The difference is, is he and I probably disagree on whether or not some of these issues should even be addressed because they were the result of a cost benefit analysis in the protocol. Okay. So he said the MQTT committee is completely fucking useless. They haven't done anything of substance since 2019 and they're a pay to play organization. The spark plug crew crew is not receptive to outside suggestions. I was on their Slack channel and I made a bunch of very constructive suggestions, both for simple tweaks and evolutionary changes. And I just got ignored. 
Both are very flawed at present, but easily fixed. I tried repeatedly with very specific criticisms along with solutions and recommendations. Fuck them both. All right. Now, again, that's not my opinion. Okay. It's not what I believe, but I understand why he believes this. Okay. I understand why he believes this. The, one of the harsh realities in our industry is that you cannot afford to alienate a guy like this guy. Like if you're an emerging protocol, you're, you're an emerging standards body, you cannot afford, you don't have the political capital to alienate a guy like him from a, in a direct, from a direct perspective. Moreover, it's, it's symptomatic of a much larger problem. If he feels this way, then other change agents feel this way. Now, there are change agents who come to you with ideas who are full of shit. They don't know their head from a hole in the ground. You don't, you should never listen to them. He is not one of those people. This guy is not one of those people. Okay. So the MQTT committee should be listening to what he has to say. And so should the spark plug group. Now, what I'll say is this on the spark plug side, which I have way more experience with, they're just right now the, the the adoption of the pro of of the protocol and the standard has exploded to the point where they are just inundated with requests and so i'm going to i'm going to give them some grace here and i'm going to say that they didn't you know they probably didn't ignore these recommendations and here's why i believe that because i did i had a conversation with arlen nipper at icc about some of these suggestions from this guy and Arlen is in agreement on some of these. Okay. The issue is a, it's a function of time and effort, you know, can, you know, and priority. Okay. But the bigger issue for me, the bigger concern I have is this guy is either unreasonable, which he is not. <laughs> okay. He's measured, he's calculated, he's educated, he's accomplished. Okay. So he's not fucking loose cannon. He knows what he's talking about. He's got the scar tissue to prove it. And yet he feels that way. That's a problem. And he's not the problem. Now, for all of you guys who say that I'm always sucking on the MQTT teat and the and the in inductive automation teat and the in the spark plug working group teat, I am not. I assure you, I give people the bad fucking news. If I think they're wrong, I tell them they're wrong. I got enemies everywhere, far and wide. All right, so here's his working list, and I want to go over this. This um, I'm a, how OPCUA and MQTT prevent interoperability, and I want to give an announcement on an upcoming paper that I think everyone should read. Okay, because I've had a chance to peer review it. I think it's exceptionally done. I think it could be groundbreaking, and I think it could be a paper that really lays out the argument and creates the the groundswell that would that could push um interoperability standards in the right direction okay i'm gonna read that next so here this guy who obviously is pissed off at the mqtt committee and the sparkplug group he has a list of core mqtt issues so remember the sparkplug working group that's managed by the eclipse foundation and that is the standard for industrial data basically okay the MQTT committee is the one who is responsible for just the MQTT um, specification. Most of us are familiar with MQTT 3.1.1, which was a really, really stripped down specification for this broker technology. Okay. MQTT 5, the Sparkplug B specification, sort of fits in between MQTT 3 and MQTT 5. It The Sparkplug B specification was designed to close some of the gaps that were in MQTT3 that needed to be closed for industrial data. And then, the, and then when MQTT5 came out, it adopted some of the things from the Sparkplug specification that closed the gap. So you got to understand there's two different bodies working here, okay? So from the core MQTT groups here, the core MQTT issues he lays out here. A, the decision to use four bits for message type. That's a problem, okay? It's short-sighted and now it's a major limitation. Do I agree or disagree? I disagree with this. Okay. Uh, I agree why I understand why he believes that that's short. It's a major limitation. I do believe it was short-sighted. 
Number two, multi-publish is essential. So publish more than one topic in a single message. I agree with this one. I understand why the standard is written that you're you're essentially publishing one topic in a single message. The way we get around it is we parse all the messages as the payload, and then we parse them on the client side. But yes, I understand what he's getting at here. Topics should have durable metadata. I disagree here. Um, they could be passed as headers in the publish or as its own message type. I am much better. I I I, I am much more comfortable publishing metadata as a function of the hierarchy. So metadata as a sibling or a, or a child of a message. Okay. Um, but he, he believes that it should have durable metadata. That's, that's really moving towards the OPC um, information model structure. Payloads should have a data type. So a MIME type to enable parsing processing by subscribers or intermediaries. Totally agree. Um, topic binding should be a built-in broker feature like a sim link. So topic aliases are not this. I agree 100%. The lack of a capability to query topics is a huge flaw and gap. Ideally, these queries should be able to include metadata filters as well. I agree with him wholeheartedly here. We we do workarounds on the client side, you basically using a platform that can browse a broker. And then we we basically write an engine that can do the, the querying for us. But I absolutely agree with him. I think natively, we should be able to query uh, topics um, from a broker directly. MQTT subscription patterns are hopelessly limiting. They should support richer match expressions and also metadata filters. He kind of touches on this above. Yeah, I'm 50% in there. Uh, MQTT should officially support a REST binding for request, response, query, publish, read, subscribe, unsubscribe. Okay, I want to say this. It should, it should, it should support some type of um, web service um, mechanism. Um, I the uh, my disagreement here would be specifically with arrest binding, but I agree in principle. Handling of large payloads, e.g., file loads, file video content, firmware, software updates, method responses needs a lot of work to improve uh, reliability. I agree, and specifically, what I'd like to be able to do is partner multiple topics together so that I could go uh, a large payload could be let's say I'm sending a blob. I could send the first third of a blob in one message in one topic, the, the second, third, and another message, another topic like that. I'd, I'd love to be able to do that type of thing. And then handling of RPC method invocations remains an awful hack. This must be addressed. All right, core spark plug issues. The rigid node device format does not fit real world models. Do away with one of them and allow more flexible topic hierarchies. I agree. Here's what I think you need to be able to do. You need to be able to parse slashes in the uh, node device definitions. Um, also, at some point, we have to get to instrument instrumentation. Right now, the issue is, is that device is device is device. We can never define whether a device is a PLC or a device is an instrument underneath a PLC. And I think we need to be able to do both. We agree with them 100%. Handling of the birth messages and the intermingling of data and metadata in them as a poor design. I agree with this one big time. That I, I, I feel like it was loosely defined when they wrote Sparkplug B here as it relates to birth. The process for requesting birth messages is terribly inefficient. Metadata should be retained, not requested each time by each client. Totally agree. Should there be, um, there should be metadata messages to deal with metadata. Mm, I'm 50-50 on this one. The opaque multi-value nature of data messages makes it impossible for clients to subscribe to individual metrics. Huge issues. Again, I agree here, but you have to understand that it, 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 because Sparkplug B is device-centric, this feels comfortable, the, the, or this feels like a natural um, evolution of that. So if you if you if we solve Sparkplug B with it being device centric, then I think it takes care of this this multi value nature of the data message. So, um, and for those of you who, have, who haven't browsed like a raw M, uh, Sparkplug B namespace, um, you would you know I recommend you do it, and you'll understand exactly what we're saying here. The primary client stuff is unnecessary and should be removed. I agree. It's it's extraneous, not necessary. Any device commands method should be fully declared. The naming of metrics and commands needs to be locked down to a more restricted character set. I disagree. Uh, add a few more top level data types. So location, blob with mind type. I agree. Support other encodings besides protobuf, plain JSON, zip JSON, BSON. Agreed. Totally agree. And millisecond resolution for timestamps is inadequate for modern systems. 
where accurate event sequencing is critical. He's obviously arguing we should go to microseconds, and I do agree. So great, uh, I agree with all those comments. And 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 let me say this: or right, I don't agree with all of them. Everything in there is valid, but I think that there's a cost-benefit analysis that's going on when you're writing these specs, where some of the where where the result is some of these things. All right, last comment, Josh. Is there any comments, questions that I need to answer before I I read this piece? Let me see here. Um, check out the lads from Predator for connecting. Uh, bah, bah, bah. All right. All right, here we go. Um, how OPC UA and MQTT prevent interoperability. So let me just say this. This is an excerpt from a paper I just I recently peer reviewed from a member of our community. Uh, he didn't. Let me see if he emailed me back and said I could mention his name. Hold on. Ba -da -da. All right, so this is from Matt Paris, okay, because he did respond. Hey, Matt, shout out, brother. Uh, he said, go ahead and reference any section in the podcast from my paper. I don't have a publication date yet, but I expect before end of year 2022. So he's going to be publishing by the end of this year, okay? I'm going to go ahead and read how OPC UA and MQTT prevent interoperability. I highly recommend that when Matt publishes this, we'll make an announcement on the podcast as to where you can get it. And when it's published, I highly recommend you read this paper. Okay. It's very, very well done. I did not read the final version. There's some piece in there on consumer applications that he's still working on. I haven't read that part yet, but I've read it's 12 pages. I've, I've done a four passes through. I'll read this section. I recommend you guys stick around for this piece. We'll post it in the discord. So, but the, the sort of the money, piece here that I really, really dug and I think kind of shines a flashlight on some of the, the general issues we see with protocols and interoperability in, in, in industry can be summed up best in this section. Okay, So how OPC UA and MQTT prevent interoperability? One of the many goals of Industry 4.0 is to eliminate the integration cost when incorporating new data producers or consumers within the enterprise. Okay, This is achieved primarily through products implementing a handful of well-known standards at both the communication and information layers. OEMs solving this problem may advertise their products as supporting, quote, OPC UA or, quote, MQTT. Similarly, end users may specify equipment to be compliant with, quote, MQTT or, quote, OPC UA. Are these two terms, however, enough? And obviously the answer is no, they're not. And we all know that in our experience. For systems implementing provide data once, distribute everywhere architectures, MQTT has become a popular choice. Defined in 99 towards the tail end of the protocol wars, MQTT defined a lightweight alternative to traditional client-server connectivity for distributed oil wells that were constrained by expensive satellite bandwidth. MQTT reduces bandwidth by moving from a traditional poll response behavior to an event-based behavior where a consumer waits for changed data. Defining devices and equipment with MQTT has reduced the cost of integration since the consumer application can have a single connection, regardless of the number of producers and through wildcard subscriptions, can automatically discover new data as it appears. So what it means is if I add an instrument on a machine and I, and, and I start publishing that instrument, any of the subscribers to a parent node who's using a wildcard to say, send me everything is going to be notified of that instrument being added and all the transitions on that instrument. Okay. Um, while invented as an industrial protocol, it remained largely unknown until around 2011 when IT based companies began discovering its inherent scalability and deployed the technology through common consumer facing applications like ignition from inductive automation, like through platforms. The protocol's popularity within the IT space has provided a compelling reason to leverage the same scalable protocol on the plant floor. And this is an important note. Part of the reason that MQTT has been so widely adopted, especially with Sparkplug B, is the e is because of the ease of which it is that you could add it to existing platforms. So if you look at like, you know, Data Hub or you, you, you look at Kep Server, you look at any of these, adding an MQTT can, client doesn't require a lot of work. I mean, when you looked at uh, the easy automation PLCs, they they had the MQTT client firmware done in 24 hours 
from the from the day they from the moment they started writing it to when they had a firmware beta available was 24 hours. You can't do that with any OPC client specs. Conversely, the OPC Foundation in 2006 released its first OPC UA spec, which featured data access among many other connectivity functions. Products began implementing OPC UA to transform existing connections through features, such as enabling non-Windows devices, browsable address spaces with common data type definitions, and long polling mechanisms with deadband filter criteria. By the way, many of the requests, the, many of the gaps that were being defined in MQTT, you'll notice can be filled by OPC UA. And, and I would argue part of the reasons they don't exist is because of the limitations they create by implementing them. Okay. OPC UA became popular among manufacturers because it upgraded existing client server paradigms that were already established from the original 96 OPC, OPC spec. A published subscribe protocols increased in popularity, as they did. PubSub connectivity was added in 2018, including brokerless protocols, Ethernet IP, and UDP. And brokered protocols like AMQP, which is basically Microsoft's version of a broker, and MQTT. Continuing towards interoperability, standard object types became defined through companion specifications, each of which utilizes the core data definitions to construct common object definitions. When it comes to interoperability, the terms OPC UA and MQTT are undefined, and they originate from opposite sides of the exact same coin. As seen in the figure above, and there's a, a diagram in there on, on the protocol stack, Specifying MQTT for equipment defines the base communication protocol, but leaves all the remaining stack undefined, which levies a heavy burden on the consumer applications for modeling. He doesn't put for modeling in there, but that's what he means. Integration hurdles for the consumer include learning of the topic paths implemented by the producer. So how did they organize the data? Determining whether the health of the producer can be monitored through the last will testament function. That's a, an element of Sparkplug B and choosing which quality of service level to use. Um, that is, do I absolutely guarantee it gets to the consumer? Do I just send it one time? Do I send it many times? Or do I guarantee it gets there? Um, knowing whether producers are publishing on a fixed time interval or only on change data and many others. Even more daunting to integrators is that MQTT itself has no definition of the data being transmitted. So the consumer application is forced to accommodate whatever the device selected regarding the encoding scheme, data types, and object definitions. If the goal is interoperability, specifying MQTT is not enough. Right. And it has to do with the fact that how data is structured and what is actually in the payload is not specified. It's not part of a specification. So therefore, you have to, what we do is we browse and then we try to deduce what we're looking at and then we can do stuff with it. That's better in my opinion, of not being able to semantically understand what I'm looking at, like a file share. Whereas MQTT is undefined above the communication protocol layer in the data access model, OPC UA has achieved standardization at every level of the data access model. While definitions at each level is an achievement matched by no other technology, the portfolio of specifications includes many choices at each level of the model. Given the plethora of communication protocols, encoding schemes, data types, and object definitions, simply connecting an OPC UA consumer to an OPC UA producer does not guarantee interoperability as each application may select different options going up the stack. An integrator is required to closely evaluate what options at each layer are implemented by the producer device and then ensure it matches the capabilities of the consumer application. Or conversely, the integrator will know the consumer application capabilities and be forced to limit the scope of OPC UA products that may be utilized. If the goal is interoperability, specifying OPC UA is not enough. That is, not all OPC clients can parse all things in every OPC server, okay? And not all OPC servers can serve to an OPC client everything that that OPC client can parse. That's what he means, okay? Outstanding paper. I highly, highly recommend everyone read this one. Matt publishes it. 
we will include it in the Discord server. I want to put a button on this, okay? In a nutshell, MQ, the reason MQTT is being widely, widely adopted, even though it has gaps, is because the gaps in the MQTT specification and the Sparkplug B specification, okay, are gaps that, that allow for flexibility and customizability that still serve short time to value, um, scalability, um, and reliability. And the gaps in the OPC UA specification do the exact opposite. They constrict you and leave you with very few options unless the vendor who developed the OPC solution that you're using is has specifically implemented the solution you need. And that's why MQTT has such wider adoption, even though as I've read out to you, there are limitations in those specifications and working with the MQTT committee and spark plug B group isn't a very happy experience for every person. Let me say for me, my experience with the spark plug B group has been great. But if this guy has had a terrible experience and he's, he's somebody. Okay. If he's had a terrible experience, it means there are a lot of other people who've had terrible experiences as well. All right. Any questions you guys want me? I need to go over Josh before we. Um, all right. Awesome. Um, isn't JSON inefficient in an industrial application where we need split second decisions? Well, for process control, sure. But what what type of decision do you need outside of process control in a split second? And no, I, no, I don't think anyone is proposing that MQTT be the or JavaScript object notation be the the uh, data format that you use for split second decisions, right? All right, everyone, thank you for watching. I hope you like, subscribe. I would, if, please, if you would, comment down below whether this type of technical discussion is something we should be doing in this forward-facing content. We're obviously gonna know it in the, in the viewership. If the viewership was really high, then if we stick with the if we stick with the technical stuff, we're not going to lose the audience. Um, or should we keep this type of technical discussion limited to things like mentorship and mastermind? Like, subscribe, hit the bell, um, comment down below, and we will see you guys next week.